Good morning. As we begin, I just want to express my most uh, profound thankfulness to the faculty and to the Board of Trustees for allowing me to give this opening lecture at uh, what I trust will be a wonderful conference uh, this spring. As we begin, I would like to begin by reading a brief word of scripture from Isaiah, the 55th chapter, verses 6 through 9. Pray and then have us begin. Isaiah writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Please join me in a word of prayer. Our most blessed and holy triune God, we praise you that you are beyond our ability to comprehend, and yet you condescend and come down to us and speak in ways that we can understand. And we pray, O oh Lord, as we consider from a theological perspective some of your attributes this morning and through this week, we pray that you would receive the glory, that we would be built up in holiness, and that even the lost might be called savingly to Jesus Christ as your word is preached and taught this week. We pray for these things expectantly in Jesus Christ, and in his name alone do we pray. Amen. Amen. I should like to begin this morning by telling you that the conference you are attending is quite controversial. Now, if you're not in uh, reformed theological circles in higher education, you might be wondering, well, how can a conference dedicated to, of all things, the doctrine of God be controversial in evangelical and reformed circles. But the fact of the matter is that there are a number of debates in the evangelical and reformed world concerning the doctrine of God, and many of the topics and doctrines that we will discuss this week are at the very epicenter of those debates. Our seminary faculty and all of our conference speakers hold to a view of God traditionally known as classical theism. Classical theism teaches that God is independent, absolute, necessary, and perfect. As the name implies, classical theism is the traditional view of God and his attributes taught throughout the history of the Christian church. Whether you look at Western or Eastern Christianity, Catholic or Protestant, Reformed or Lutheran, nearly all theologians held to classical theism for the last 2,000 years. And there are deep scriptural reasons for this. When God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3, he revealed himself through Jesus Christ speaking from a burning bush. The bush, as I'm sure you know, burned, but as it is in the Latin, nectamen consumibator, the bush burned, but it was not consumed. This theophany has much to teach us about God and his attributes. The fire burned, but it did not consume the bush. This theophany teaches us that God has life from himself and from no one else. He is not dependent upon anyone or anything outside of himself. He is perfect as the self-existent one. This conception of God has extensive implications for all of theology. God's relationship to time, space, and all of his creatures 
is completely and totally on his own terms. In the words of St. Anselm, God is the being greater than which none can be conceived. As a greatest possible being, he is unique and utterly beyond human comprehension. One can find this classical view of God in the most significant creeds and theological formulations in history, including our own Westminster Standards. The fourth answer to the question in the shorter catechism, what is God, gives this answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I thought about extemporaneously calling on one of our students to see if they knew that question, but decided not to do that. This language is chock full of traditional terms regarding the attributes of God. The Confession of Faith saw, uh, follows suit in chapter 2, which begins with these words. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, passions, immutable, immense, eternal, and incomprehensible. Chapter 2 goes on to say that God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. God is so independent of his creatures, the confession asserts, that they do not even add glory to God. God merely manifests his own glory in, by, unto, and upon the creatures that he has freely made. Now, while this is the view of the Westminster Standards, it is not solely or proprietary to Presbyterians, and the ecumenical diversity of our conference speakers testifies to this this morning. Now, a great number of theologians and scholars in the contemporary world are skeptical of this classical view of God. Many argue that classical theism makes God so distant from us as his creation that he is actually aloof, so transcendent that we could have no real relationship with a God like this. The God of classical theism, many argue, is more akin to a stone, an iceberg, or a mathematical axiom but it is not the picture of the living and dynamic God we find in the Old and New Testaments. Those critical of our confessional view of God are known by different names, modified classical theists, modern theists, theistic mutualists, but whatever term one uses, the unifying principle is that they reject our view of God that our speakers will advance this week. Well, to frame our conference this morning, I would like to deal with one of the common objections to our confessional view of God. There are many that are offered, but this particular objection has to do with practical theology. I was doing some graduate work, and some of my fellow graduate students uh, put their objection to classical theism like this. The classical view of God makes for a great piece of philosophy, but it can't preach. In other words, many argue that if you take the view of God that we all hold, that God is transcendent, you can't communicate it from a pulpit, and it will not help you in your life of godliness. This argument is serious for any evangelical Christian, but it's particularly pressing for us here at Greenville Seminary for at least two reasons. Number one, our seminary is founded upon the primacy of preaching. We firmly hold and seek to inculcate in all of our students that preaching is the primary means whereby God calls the elect to himself and builds them up in knowledge, righteousness, and truth, and holiness according to the image of Jesus Christ. So if we have built all of our curriculum around preaching and we've included classical theism that can't preach, our students are in trouble. 
But there's a second matter, and this is more of an existential issue for you. You have signed up to come to a week-long preaching conference, and if classical theism can't preach, you are in for a long and boring week. Now, there's a lot one could say to rebut this objection. One could look at history and show how classical theism fueled the homilies of Augustine on St. John's Gospel, or how it motivated Bernard of Clairvaux to move all of Europe with the force of his rhetoric, or filled Calvin and Luther with confidence to preach against the papacy. But this morning, I want to take a different approach. Rather than looking exegetically or theologically, I want to look practically at this issue. I want to show you that you must believe in the confessional and classical view of God in order to live the Christian life and preach as we are commanded in the New Testament. I would assert that if you don't hold to the classical view of God, you won't be able to preach effectively or live a God-honoring life to the greatest possible extent. Now, to prove my point, I want to take what I think to be probably the most difficult divine attribute to demonstrate its practical value and show you that it can preach. And a fortiori, if the most difficult doctrine in the confession will preach, then we know everything that we find in chapter two will preach just fine. The doctrine that I want to demonstrate its experimental nature this morning is the doctrine of divine impassibility. In particular, I want to show you that only an impassable God can freely and graciously love you and save you from your sins. Now, what do we mean when we say that God is impassable? That's not a word that we typically use commonly in the English language. We mean that what the confession says when it says God exists without body, parts, or passions that God exists without any passions. Now, the question for us is, what is a passion? Our English word comes from the Latin patio or patio, meaning to suffer. More technically, though, a passion or patio in Latin means to endure, to undergo, or to experience. When you suffer, you undergo something that you do not wish to experience. This is related to the Greek word pathos. When you suffer, you undergo emotional changes, particularly in your body. What the confession says is that God is beyond suffering. He is perfect in his triune existence so that pain, evil, and suffering cannot disturb the perfect beatitude of God's existence. There are a number of places in Scripture to which one may turn to prove this. The confession and the tradition would point us to Acts 14, where Paul and Barnabas are mistaken for gods. When Paul impresses upon his audience that he is but a mere mortal, he says to them, we are also men of like nature with you. What Paul literally says there is that we are men of like passions with you, implying that human existence is to have passions, while God is exempt from these. So more technically now, what does it mean for God to be unable to suffer? One philosopher, Brian Lefto, uh, helpfully summarizes that divine impassibility has three no's connected to it. God is not able to suffer, to have emotions, either positively or negatively, or third, to be acted on from outside himself. The fact that divine impassibility teaches God is not able to suffer is fairly straightforward. 
But what about the assertion that God can't have emotions, particularly positive ones? Well, let's think about this for a moment. God doesn't have a body, so he can't have the physiological experiences we have when we experience emotions. God's heart cannot race, his pulse cannot quicken, as happens when we experience emotions. Moreover, emotions change based on our circumstances, particularly those we cannot control. But God is always in control, and he is never able to change. Emotions are volatile. The English word emotion comes from the French, where it's used to describe a movement of a violent mob in the street. But God is perfect in triune harmony, so that there is no disturbance in his being. Emotions also entail vulnerability. As one philosopher puts it, emotions require a susceptibility, vulnerability, liability, or proneness, and in particular, the possibility that goals we pursue might not be achieved. We are angry because something we want is just outside of our grasp. We long for someone we love when we're separated from them because we cannot have their presence and their company. And this stirs up emotions within us. But God is so perfect that he does not have any of these realities. And finally, God is so perfect that nothing may be added or taken away from him without destroying who he is. When scripture ascribes emotion to God, many in our Reformed tradition say that's the same as when scripture ascribes eyes or arms to God. It's a picture to teach us something about God's mind or his will or his power, but God no more properly has emotions in him than he has arms or eyes or feet. And so the fact of the matter is that this is why we would say God is impassable. Now, one might finally object and say, now, wait a minute. How can God not be acted on by his creatures? Doesn't the scripture present us with all of these instances where God deals with the sinful Israelites, and it seems as though their actions have a genuine effect on God. Well, that's fair enough, but you have to ask yourself some deeper questions. Why does anyone in the world act in any way? Because God has planned it from all eternity. Why does anything in the world exist? Because God created it. Why can anyone act towards God? Because God allows it while upholding them by the word of their power. Can anything happen that God is not aware of? No, God exists outside of time and knows all things. So divine impassibility teaches that scripture leads us to the conclusion that God doesn't suffer, have emotions, and that his creatures cannot force themselves upon him. Now, those who disagree with divine impassibility argue that you cannot preach an impassable God. Why not? There are a couple of reasons, and in particular, many who are skeptical of divine impassibility argue that an impassable God cannot love you. Because love entails passion and mutual relationship. Love requires the ability to suffer. In modern theology, Richard Bauckham writes, it has been often said that if God is personal in his love, it is analogous to human love, then he must be open to suffering in which a relationship of love can bring. Madeline Hughes puts it more provocatively, it is entirely a misuse of words to call God a loving father if he is able to view the waywardness and rebellion of his children without being moved by grief or pity. It is of the very nature of God to suffer 
when his objects of love suffer, whether inflicted on themselves or from others. If the suffering of God is denied, then Christianity must discover a new terminology and totally obliterate the statement, God is love, from the scriptures. A God who is all-powerful and who cannot suffer might be an impassive, benevolent despot, but this is not the God of the Bible. And as Jürgen Moltmann put it very famously, a God who cannot suffer is poorer than any man, and we cannot call him loving. He is a loveless being. Now, notice the general force of these arguments. Number one, God's love must be like human love to have any meaning. If God's love is not in some way patterned off of ours, we can't say God is loving. Number two, a lack of emotion entails a lack of caring. And number three, love requires a relationship of equal footing. If God is not able to be harmed by us, then we can't have a real relationship with him. The underlying premise of all of this is that God's love must look like ours to be real love. Well, the Christian church for the last 2,000 years has rejected that premise, and I would urge you to reject it as well. Man's love is not primary. God's love is not patterned off of human love. Rather, it is God's love that sets the standard for what humans call love. What does the scripture say? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, 1 John 4, 9 to 10. Scripture commends the picture of the love of God in Christ where he laid down his life as the pattern for human love. The picture focuses on an action of sacrificial giving, not emotional or psychological states in God's mind. In Scripture, love is a virtue of giving oneself to another. As Thomas Aquinas helpfully summarized, love is first an act of the will, whereby you will the good of another and you wish to be united to another. And that is exactly what we find God doing for us in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. He wills the good for us and unites us to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit through his own Son. Moreover, I would want to say to you today that a God who had a passionate love would never love you. Passionate love is moved by its object, not by itself. Let's think about this and separate this from all the philosophical jargon. Emotional love is something not that we control. It's stimulated by finding something lovely in someone else. This is how human beings, for instance, fall in love. The loveliness of a person draws you to them. That's the principle of attraction. For some of us, this love is a love at first sight, whereas the very first time you met the person that would become your spouse, he or she, and their loveliness, their charm, their beauty, so overwhelmed you that you forsook everything in order to get to know her name and to talk to her. This is a principle that whether you fall in love at first sight or love in a different way, the principle of attraction is still true. For my wife and myself, it was not love at first sight, but probably 95th sight. We didn't particularly care for one another when we met. All right, fact of the matter is we couldn't stand one another. 
we would always argue. And in fact, I had a woman who was like a, a mother to me in high school, a second mother, who the first time she heard us argue, as soon as Christina left the room, she looked at me and she said, you know, that's who you're going to marry, right? I was skeptical. But uh, 14 years and three kids later, things changed. Why? Because as we got to know one another, the better parts of us drew us to one another. That is the principle that always works with human love. Love is contingent upon the loveliness of the object of our love. Now, let me ask you, do you want God's love to be contingent on your loveliness? Do you want a God to elect you on the basis of the joy that you would bring to him? As for me, I'm so thankful that God's love is impassable because he would have never loved me, for there is nothing lovely in me outside of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. It is only because of Christ that God first loves you, as the scriptures say. The only reason God is moved towards you in love is because of God and his loving nature alone, not you. The greatest love that God brings to us is his grace. The love of God the Father issues in the grace of God accomplished by the Son and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Do you want the grace you need for salvation to be based on a love that is contingent on you? If so, there goes your assurance of salvation. Only an impassable God, I would argue, would forgive sinners as badly depraved as you and me. Now, wait a minute, you might object. I know all sorts of human relationships, even among unbelievers, where tremendous forgiveness and reconciliation has taken place. Why couldn't God have a passable love as we do as human beings and yet be infinite in his forgiveness and forgive our many failings? Well, that's true. I don't deny that. There are tremendous stories of human forgiveness. Perhaps the most tremendous one I'm familiar with comes from a sermon preached at the Southern Baptist Pastors Conference in 1987. In that sermon, Pastor Tom Elliff from Oklahoma told the story about his father and his mother. They met when they were young. They lived their lives together. They raised children and had grandchildren together. But his father, who he described as his hero, left his mother in their mid-60s, forsaking her for another woman. He walked out on her, abandoned her, and forsook her love. Years passed, and both of their health began to decline. His mother was later diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and she began the slow march into darkness that marks the final phase of one of the most cruel diseases human beings can wrestle with. Right before she died, she became restless, and she would just sit there for hours on end saying, want, 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 and they knew that that was a sign that there was something that she needed, and the kids tried everything. Are you in pain? Is there something wrong? Is there something you want to see? Is there something you want to talk to? Nothing worked, but then finally one of the children looked at her and said, mom, do you want to talk to dad? And she said, forgive, forgive, forgive. By the time they were able to get in touch with their dad, his mother had fallen into a coma and was unresponsive. Not knowing what to do, they got him on the phone and put him up to uh, the receiver up to her ear and he began talking to her. When this happened, her eyes opened 
she moved up in the bed and clearly and distinctly said, I forgive you, I love you. And then she was able to let go and to go on and be with the Lord some short time later. That is a powerful story of human forgiveness. It's one that certainly would make us think, well, maybe God's forgiveness could be like that. But I would argue for two reasons. That is not nearly as beautiful a picture of the love of God as you and I need. Why? Number one, human beings sometimes extend forgiveness because we need to give forgiveness as much as we need to receive it. Sometimes for us, like for his mother, even when someone forsakes you, and even when they've wronged you, you have an emotional hole in your heart that you need to have filled. And so even though you don't want to forgive somebody, you forgive them. But we must be reminded that God is triune. He needs no one and no body outside of himself. So whereas human forgiveness is passable, we often overcome the hurt of someone else in order to fulfill our own happiness. God does not need our relationship in order to be happy. So he would not need it. And if his love were passable, he would have no reason of giving it to us. And second, I would argue perhaps most powerfully that no amount of passable love could move God to love us because God is infinite. Think about for a moment um, what it must have been like for Tom Ellis' mother to say as she was descending into Alzheimer's, I forgive you, I love you. How tremendous the pain she had to overcome to want to give those words of forgiveness. Think about something else for a moment. Imagine you're driving down a road, say Wade Hampton, and somebody cuts you off in traffic, which is somebody who grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. There's a lot more traffic around here these days than when I was a boy, and oftentimes you get cut off. Sometimes a thought occurs to your mind that is uh, less than positive in the evaluation of the driving skill of your fellow traveler. And you experience just a brief fleeting moment of unjust anger. That brief moment is exponentially more offensive to the consciousness of God and to his will than if your spouse were to leave you after 40 years, it would be to you. God is infinite in holiness, and even the smallest sins that we commit, while not infinite in and of themselves, are against a being who cannot even conceive an unholiness and who is perfect in happiness. And so, as St. Anselm says, it has an infinite effect, and we deserve, therefore, the infinite wrath of God. A passable love would not overcome that, but an impassable love that is not in any way contingent on you, allows God and Jesus Christ to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And for God to send his own Son into the world to die for you and to send the Holy Spirit into your heart, teaching you to cry, Abba, Father, because in no way is God's love contingent on you, and in no way is his forgiveness contingent on you, but it's contingent on his divine will, impassively yet powerfully saying, I will forgive you because of Christ and what we, the Trinity, have planned from all eternity. So no, I would argue that we do not want a God who is passable in his love because we would not be loved and we would not be forgiven. 
Another common objection to divine impassibility is that a God who is impassible is incapable of empathizing with us. What do we mean by empathy? Empathy is, according to uh, the great source of most human knowledge, Google, the ability to understand and share the feelings of another, the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Psychologists identify three forms of empathy, cognitive, that you understand someone else, emotional, that you have an emotional connection with them, and compassion, that in the way you behave towards them, you express empathy. R. Mullins, a philosopher of religion at St. Andrews University, argues that empathy is an essential need for humanity, that humanity, in order to be fulfilled, must have empathy. And since empathy is necessary for God and his relationship to us, we require divine empathy. Hence, if God were impassable, he would be unable to meet the basic need of humanity. Mullins argues that impassibility could, quote, lead one to resent God for his faked empathy and could very well lead to a failure to bond with God. After all, why pray to a being that cannot be moved or influenced by your prayers? Why bother trying to explain your situation to a being that cannot possibly understand what it's like to feel like you? He argues further, it might lead one to wonder why God would create beings with a desire for empathy, knowing full well that this desire cannot be satisfied. Giving creatures such a desire for empathetic accuracy might seem absurd and make life less than meaningful. There certainly seems to be something cruel, he says, about an impassable God creating beings who desire empathetic accuracy, knowing full well they will forever feel lonely on a pale blue dot in a vast and empty universe. Can an impassable God be empathetic? with mankind? Well, I think there are two angles in which one should consider the question. From the one side, or in the great scholastic dis, uh, tradition, but we distinguish. Yes, in Jesus Christ, the God-man, we are able to find one who may empathize with us by virtue of his human nature and his experience in this world. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, quote, for we do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. Does this compromise the impassibility of God? In no way. The incarnation maintains the integrity of the natures of Christ so that Christ's human and divine natures are joined together in one person, but without confusion, conversion, or composition of either of the natures. Christ remains impassable in his divine nature while still being able to be touched with the infirmity of our existence as regards his human nature. But now this answer, which is found in classical Christian writings all throughout the centuries and the millennia, will not satisfy those who argue that God must, in his divine nature, be empathetic in order to meet the needs of mankind. I would note that empathy would have likely not been a concern for theologians or people beyond the last hundred years. 
Arguing that empathy is a psychological need or necessity for human beings betrays the psychologization of human nature that Philip Reef chronicles in his work, The Rise and Triumph of the Therapeutic, and which you can read more about that in Carl Truman's excellent series of books, A Strange New World and The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. There are things that we think are needs that, biblically speaking, we might need to challenge and say, you say that's a need, but can you demonstrate to me from Scripture that that's an actual need and not just a felt need? Nevertheless, God is able to completely understand anything that you think, feel, or say because he is omniscient. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Again, David says to Solomon, and you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your fathers and serve him with your whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and he understands every plan or thought, 1 Chronicles 28, 9. Notice that these texts assert that God knows man and his mind and his will fully and completely but that there is no speculation regarding the internal emotional or psychological state of God as he knows us. Rather, the scripture asserts that God knows us completely and fully. One need not believe that God must feel your emotions in order to know what it means for you to suffer or to experience pain. And I would argue that the scripture gives us something far better than empathy. It presents us with our triune God who is able to save us from our miseries. What does God say to us in Isaiah? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. The emphasis is not on God feeling what we feel. The emphasis is on the presence that his salvation brings. I would argue this is part uh, true in, in part because God is impassable. There are many things in pastoral ministry that we try to prepare you for in seminary. And then there are many things that we simply cannot prepare you for them. If we were to tell you what might happen to you in the ministry, you wouldn't believe us. You just have to find it out for yourself. I remember the first time I got a really bad case of hate mail. I told someone the truth in a counseling setting, and he was having none of it. He sent a letter to my session calling me everything but the names on my actual birth certificate. I was so nervous about how this was going to be handled. I had never had this happen to me before. And it's one of those liminal moments in life when I can visually remember the moment. One of my elders came by, and as he was walking to the session meeting, he saw me in my office, and he turned around, and he looked at me and said, Hey, Scott, that was a nice letter, wasn't it? You know, anyone who's been in leadership, especially in the church, has had this happen to them. This might be the first time for you, but I assure you it won't be the last time. But you didn't do anything wrong. Don't worry about it. I can't describe to you the relief that that brought to me and the similar response from all the men in the room. I didn't care that that elder felt or didn't feel what I was feeling. And in fact, I was in turmoil and he was in perfect happiness and peace. 
What mattered was that he assured me this was going to blow over and it was no big deal. You and I are torn up about the problems in our life because we don't know how they will turn out. It is not the same for God. God is impassable because he knows the end from the beginning. As uh, Morton Smith, who taught here for a number of years, said uh, he was talking to someone who uh, was a Christian but had a different approach to God than he did. And uh, the man asked him, what's the most distinctive thing about you Calvinists and Presbyterians? He said, well, the way you think about God is God is just as surprised by suffering as you are. In our tradition, God is sovereign over all things. He's not surprised and he's in control of all things. To borrow from the old hymn, I would argue that you can lean on the everlasting arms of the Father, Son, and Spirit because they are impassable. They are not torn up by the suffering of this world, but they are able to bring real salvation. In conclusion, I think it's clear that divine impassibility can preach just fine. And as you go through this conference, I encourage you with prayer to approach this conference from an aspect of personal piety. Expect to be changed and transformed more into the image of Christ after you have gone through this week of preaching and teaching on the glorious attributes of our wonderful God and that you will leave here different than when you came. I can't promise you that you will understand all of the doctrines that they are presented this week. Even our conference speakers don't understand them fully. And that's a good thing because God is beyond our ability to comprehend. As Herman Bovink once wrote, mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. As I said at the beginning of this lecture, there are many who would categorically disagree with the position that our conference speakers will take this week. You know, I suppose my greatest criticism of our friends in the evangelical and reformed world who demure at classical theism is that they offer us a false choice. What do I mean by that? By way of illustration, on September 8th, 1966, the world was changed forever. I'm sure all of you in here know the importance of this particular date. It was the airing of the first episode of Star Trek, the original series. The show centered on a cast anchored in three characters, James Kirk, Mr. Spock, and Leonard McCoy, the physician. Now, there are fascinating debates among philosophers who also uh, are recreationally nerds as well, who debate whether or not Gene Roddenberry created these characters based on Plato's tripartite view of the soul, but, but that's not terribly important right now. One theme in the show was the dialectic between Kirk and Spock. Kirk was the embodiment of 20th century American male leadership, dynamic, unpredictable, and very, very emotional. You might say preeminently passable and passionate. Spock was the polar opposite, cold, logical, aloof, and completely unremotional, and the subtext of the show being completely unrelatable. Often, the strengths and weaknesses of these two characters were played off one another in various settings in the show. Well, if I might borrow from Star Trek, there are many in the evangelical world who say you have a choice. You can have a God like Kirk, or you can have a God like Spock. You can have a perfectly logical God, but you won't relate to him, and he will be like a statue to you, or more particularly, he will be cold and unfeeling and distant. Or you can have a 
intensely passionate and emotional God to whom you may easily relate, but he often has many of our weaknesses and our shortcomings. I would assert to you that the implanted axiom that you have only two options is simply wrong. The Bible presents the living triune God and all of his glorious attributes as one who transcends our categories. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And it is only because you have a God who is simple, immutable, eternal, impassable, and incomprehensible that you have a God who will save you to the uttermost, washing your sins away in the blood of the Lamb and bringing you to eternal life. And if I might say in closing, I'm so glad to see each and every one of you here today. But in a crowd of this size, even at a place like this seminary with the speakers that we have, I don't take it for granted that necessarily every single one of you in here believe in the Lord Jesus Christ savingly. There's a story about a, a Baptist minister's son, uh, Elias Keach, who ran away from the Lord, and he actually got converted under his own sermon that he plagiarized from his father. Strange things have happened, and so I would say if you are here today and you have not come to know Jesus Christ savingly, you stand before an impassable God. A God not like a human judge who will look at your sins and go, well, I have many sins and faults too. I will forgive you without you ever coming through Jesus Christ. You stand before a God who is infinite in his holiness and his justice, and he is not moved by you at all. And so the only way that you may receive salvation is to accept Jesus Christ as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. And there is no better place to receive Christ than here at a preaching conference. And I would plead with you to do that today if that is true of you. But for those of us who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, let us over this week exalt and exult in our God who is high above us. Let us pray. We bless you, O Lord, our God. We come to you, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and only because we have the help of the Spirit whom you and the Son have sent to us. And we pray, O Father, that as the Holy Spirit is the bond of love, that through the preaching and the teaching of this week, you would bind all of our hearts together closer to you so that we might experience more union and communion with our triune God. We praise you that though you are moved by nothing, that you move us towards yourself by your grace. Do this, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen. amen.